0: Hello, welcome to our third lesson in the Biblical Womanhood series. I'd like for us once again to take just a few moments to review what we've covered so far. In our first lesson, in the creation account from Genesis 1, we learned that God created a man and a woman, both in the image and the likeness of God, and he created them equal as bearers of his image. And then as representatives for him on this earth, he gave them dominion over the birds in the heavens and all the animals on the earth. But we also learn that the Lord not only created men and women equal, he created them different. Equality does not mean sameness. God wisely designed the male and the female differently so that they might effectively carry out distinct roles. God created the man and the woman to give completeness to our relationships, our families, and our churches. In the second chapter of Genesis, we noted that the man was created first in order to demonstrate that he was to be the primary leader. We also saw that even though Eve sinned first, Adam was called into accountability for his sin before she was. As he was the one who was primarily responsible for the family. Last time we considered that in his kind care for the man, God created a helper. He fashioned a helper that was suitable for Adam. And we saw that she was not only made for the man, but she was made from the man. The woman was created to be his helpmeet, to compliment him, not to compete against him. Then I very briefly and broadly answered the questions, how can married women as well as unmarried women feel their role as helpers? And we concluded from the scriptures that married women feel their God-designed role as helpmates by joyfully submitting to the headship of their husbands and by showing them proper respect and honor as the head of their homes. Single women properly display their unique feminine design by serving and ministering to their families as well as others while remaining in proper submission to their respective authorities. Married, divorced, widowed, and single women can all be beautiful pictures of true womanhood as they're serving, nurturing, and helping in the spheres where God has placed them. Modern feminism... Has sought to rob us of our distinctiveness as women, but we honor our Creator when we put on display the beauty of His divine design and creation. We can clearly see the perfection of God's intention for the roles of men and women in the first two chapters of Genesis. It was like a fairy tale. Adam was very happy and fulfilled in his role as the leader the protector and the provider for his family, his wife. And Eve was perfectly content in her position as Adam's helper and companion. She joyfully submitted to his leadership. There was no competition, no vying for the other station, no anger, no jealousy, just complete and perfect harmony. They were both sinless. I never spent much time with Christians, I was never around many Christians until I was converted at the age of 17. And I was very naive. I didn't grow up in the church and I thought if two Christians got married then life would just be perfect. They would live for the Lord and for one another and it would just be glorious. So when my husband Don and I married, I had very unrealistic expectations. I really thought we were never going to argue or fight, and we were going to have this wonderful life of ministry together. We were going to be the next Aquila and Priscilla in my dreams. Well, those proud dreams were dashed before we were even off of our honeymoon. After only being married for a few days, we had a major argument, and I discovered that neither of us were quite as holy and sanctified as I had foolishly believed that we were. And up to this point, Adam and Eve had never sinned. They'd never sinned against one another. They'd never been sinned against, even in the slightest way. But then something horrific happened. Satan entered the picture. He came into their unspoiled world, and he brought temptation and destruction and sin. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3, We'll begin in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now I realize that's a lot of scripture for us to cover in one lesson, but it's extremely important to understand the magnitude of what happened in the Garden of Eden. This is a key turning point in the history of mankind and in order to begin to comprehend biblical manhood and womanhood it's imperative that we understand the fall of man into sin as well as the consequences and repercussions of that fall. The Bible tells us that the serpent was more cunning than any other animal that God had made. Satan was a traitor against God and he envied man and his happiness. He knew that the only way he could destroy the man was by corrupting him. So his scheme was to separate Adam and Eve from God. Now, you would think that he would go after the leader of the family, but he didn't. And there was a reason why he didn't. He was crafty, and he knew exactly what he was doing. So rather than approach the man directly, he went after the woman when she was alone, near the forbidden tree, and some distance from her husband. He assailed her with temptation, knowing that she was the weaker vessel, as we're told in 1 Peter 3. And the enemy of our souls uses the same method that he used to deceive Eve against us. First, he falsely quoted the Lord's prohibition of the fruit from one tree. And he said he had forbidden them the enjoyment of the fruit of all the trees, God had actually told Adam and Eve that they could freely eat from all the other trees in the garden except one. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then Satan slyly questioned if the partaking of the fruit was really sin. In verse 1 of chapter 3, he said, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? He was planting seeds of doubt. You must be mistaken. God wouldn't really keep you from this tree. There's no way he would do such an unreasonable thing. Well, the first ploy didn't work. Adam, or um, excuse me, Eve corrected him by saying that they could eat of the fruit of all the other trees in the garden. So Satan went to strategy number two. He flatly denied what God had said. The Lord had told Adam, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. But the serpent told Eve, you will not surely die. He directly contradicted what God had said. It was an outright lie. And his deception didn't stop there with the denial of any danger in disobeying God's clear command. He went further in communicating to the woman that God was withholding something very special from her and from her husband. He said it would be to their advantage to eat the fruit and that God was trying to keep something from them. He not only said they wouldn't die, but they would actually gain by eating the fruit. He promised them more power and intellectual knowledge. As we see in verse 5 of chapter 3, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He was telling them, You'll be like mighty gods, all-knowing and all-powerful. He enticed Eve with the false assurance that if they ate the forbidden fruit, they would be equal to God. They would no longer be his subjects, but would become sovereign, knowing everything that they would want to know. The devil brought about his own ruin by desiring to be like the Most High, and now he wanted to infect Eve with that same wish. Eve's weakness first allowed her to enter into a discourse with the serpent. We we know that she was near the tree without Adam there to protect her. Maybe she was curious and just wanted to see what the prohibited fruit looked like. Matthew Henry said those that would not eat of the forbidden fruit must not come near the forbidden tree but she did come near she entered into a conversation with the serpent and consequently she was beguiled Eve was deceived and she admitted it in verse 13 the Lord God said to the woman what is this you have done and the woman said the serpent deceived me and I ate she thought the serpent was speaking the truth She believed that she and Adam would not actually die and that the fruit would make them wise and give them all knowledge. Under this deception, Eve fell into transgression and she was the cause and the means by her persuasion of bringing Adam into the same sin. In so doing, she led the entire human race into sin and destruction. Now, on the contrary, Adam was not deceived by the serpent. He'd never even conversed with the serpent, nor was he deceived by his wife. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he fully comprehended that they would indeed die. And although they would have knowledge, they would would not have all knowledge as God does, they would have a practical knowledge of good and evil. He ate the fruit of the tree out of love for his wife. He wanted to be with her. He didn't want her to die alone. So knowing the consequences, he sinned willfully against the light and the understanding that God had given him. Again, this truth from the creation account is very significant as we see in the New Testament. In first Timothy two, twelve through fourteen, we're told, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. The serpent was sly. He knew that Adam was stronger and that he would not be as easily deceived as Eve was. The Bible commentator Albert Barnes said, This is the second reason why the woman should occupy a subordinate rank in all things. It is that in the most important situation in which she was ever placed, she was shown that she was not qualified to take the lead. It seems that there was more of a weakness or a resistance to to not yield to temptation. There was something in her character that was not adapted to leadership, which properly belonged to the man. And it appears in the New Testament, in the restrictions of women in the positions of teaching and exercising authority over men in the church, that the Apostle Paul had in mind the way these sins came about and he was trying to avoid similar disobedience in the New Testament church. Once again, he takes us back to the account of creation and draws our attention to something different in the natures of Adam and Eve. Something in their differing roles that was violated when Eve was deceived, but Adam wasn't. Eve was deceived into believing something that wasn't true, and she sinned as a result of the deception. Adam was not deceived, but sinned with his eyes wide open. Both of them sinned, but their sin came about in different ways. And it's so important for us to recognize that while God made men and women equal, he also created them different in their inclinations. Those differences are consistent with God's purposes in entrusting leadership in the home and in the church to men. Generally speaking, women are more relational than men. They're typically more swayed and influenced by their emotions men are more normally more given to rational analysis. Now, I realize there are exceptions to this rule, but generally speaking, this is the case. Paul knew that the more gentle, more nurturing, and relational nature of women made Eve more susceptible to deception and less inclined to oppose the serpent. There's so much that I want to draw out of the third chapter of Genesis, that it would just be impossible to cover it all in one session. But before I close today, I'd like for us to consider some crucial les- lessons that we can learn as Christian women from Satan's beguiling of Eve in the garden. First, we need to remember that Satan is subtle and we are gullible. The serpent didn't just bluntly expose his plan to draw Eve into sin and consequently her husband with her. No, He was subtle. He didn't engage in a bold attack against her. He simply asked her what appeared to be an innocent question. Has God really said? He began his dialogue with Eve by planting small seeds of doubt and then misrepresenting God's command and seeking to make his laws look unreasonable. He continued to tempt her to doubt the certainty of God's word as well as God's love toward her and his desire for her well-being. And ladies, he does the same thing with us. If we think that we're better equipped to handle the evil devices of the enemy of our souls than Eve was, then we're foolish and we're proud. And we don't really have a good understanding of our own frailties. Eve had no corruption in her heart as we do. We are more easily tempted than Eve was, not less so, due to our own deceitful hearts as well as the many unbiblical reasonings that surround us. Satan still comes in sneaky ways, and he seeks to plant small seeds of doubt in our minds. Maybe the scripture really doesn't mean that. Perhaps the feminists are right, and the Bible is old-fashioned and not relevant anymore. I mean, God can't actually expect me in this day and age to subject myself to my husband's authority. I'm not sure that God genuinely loves me and that he really wants what's best for me and what will make me happy. We need to recognize how spiritually disastrous it is for us to ever reason with temptation instead of immediately rejecting it and fleeing from it. Well then Satan outright denied that God had said that what God had said would actually happen. And whenever we allow the smallest possibility in our minds that there's any falsehood in the word of God, we open the door of our hearts to false teaching, disobedience, and sometimes even apostasy from the gospel. Years ago my husband and I knew two young men in Canada who were brothers They professed to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior and seemed to be very sound in their walk with him. They both had brilliant intellects and began to have take a great interest in debates in their secular university between Christian apologist and declared atheist. Over time they became more and more involved in studying higher criticism and they began to arrange these debates that that they had been attending. Their pastor warned them about the danger of filling their minds with ungodly and unbiblical thinking and strongly urged them to stop arranging, studying for, and even attending the debates. Likewise, my husband cautioned them that they were treading on dangerous ground that could eventually lead to apostasy. Unfortunately, those young men did not heed the warnings. And they became even more enthralled with and engaged in dissecting and analyzing the scriptures with unbelievers. And just as had been warned, the two of them began to deny the truth and the validity of the Bible. And apparently, they have turned completely away from the teachings of the gospel. Satan first tempts us to doubt God and then to deny him. Atheists are skeptics long before they absolutely deny the existence of God. And just as he did with Eve, he's quick to look for our weaknesses and our deficiencies and attack us right where we are the weakest. We also need to recognize that Satan tempts us to be discontented with God's plan and purpose for us. The serpent attempted to convince Eve that her state was not as good as it could be and should be. He insinuated that God hadn't provided for them what was the best and that he actually didn't even want what was best for them. Here she was living in paradise with no sin, no sickness, no heartache or suffering, and yet he tempted her to believe that God did not want her to be happy. He brought reproach on the goodness of God. And dear sisters, to this very day, Satan accuses God to us and us to God. And just as he sought to alienate Adam, Adam's and Eve's affections from God and to destroy their allegiance to him, he seeks to do the same to us. He wants us to doubt God's love for us. He wants us to question his promises and to distort his character. We must recognize that we are engaged in warfare. Ephesians 6.13 tells us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us, destroy our families and our churches, and he cannot be defeated with fleshly weapons. But the Lord has not left us defenseless against our adversary. He's given us clear instruction to follow. Second Corinthians 10, 4 and 5 tells us, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Dear sisters, if we want to be victors in this battle, we have to demolish every argument every opinion or philosophy that denies the word of God and seeks to make itself look superior to the Lord's design and purposes. And this includes the unbiblical precepts of radical feminism. We must develop a complete trust in and reliance on the truths of Scripture and the character of God as revealed in the pages of Scripture, knowing that he is our good Kind, wise, and loving Father, we must choose to joyfully embrace His calling for us. The calling that He's given us as His daughters to be faithful helpers, nurturers, and servants for His glory. Today, we've just begun to uncover the way that Satan tempted Eve and brought an end to the paradise that she and Adam had known. Next time, we'll look more closely at the curse that came upon both the man and the woman, the consequences of that curse, and the Lord's divine provision for them. Thank you again for joining us, and may the Lord bless and keep you until our next time together.